Last week, uh, we concluded <clears throat> a section of scripture. If you'll notice here, uh, reflections, eight days in John chapters 12 through 20. Uh, as you can well imagine, we're not going to go in depth, but we are going to go back uh, and look from John chapter 12 and work our way through and end up in the passage of scripture, finishing chapter 20, as we've been going verse by verse through this glorious gospel, this wonderful account of the life, ministry, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. And so uh, it's appropriate. I, I got to thinking about it, and I thought, at first I was going, wow, Lord, you know, we missed uh, timing it out where we were looking at the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ just by a couple of weeks uh, as we're coming up to Resurrection Sunday next Sunday. However, and, and we're going to look at some things in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the scapegoat and some other things back in Leviticus because they have a direct bearing on the resurrection. And, and we'll, we'll take some time out from our studies in John to do that next Sunday. However, this Sunday we traditionally call Palm Sunday. And so happy Palm Sunday to everyone. And it's interesting because that's covered in John chapter 12. Uh, what we're looking at here is in John chapters 1 through 11, it's three plus years uh, of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. And then in chapter 12, at the beginning, we see that uh, from ch chapter 12 to chapter 20, it covers Eight days. Well, nine if you want to count Saturday, which is, sets the stage in chapter 12. But really, eight days from the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey and through a whole week of intense squaring off with religious leaders and teaching in the temple precincts every day, uh, teaching over on the Mount of Olives. We look at that. We call it the Olivet Discourse. Uh, you know, he it was very, very visible during this week leading up to Passover. And... and the people who first embraced him, we're going to look at that in two different lights this morning and talk about, uh, and I believe I've mentioned it before, the two crowds, but four crowds that were there uh, on Palm Sunday, on the day that Jesus triumphantly rode in Jerusalem, which really wasn't all that much of a triumph by the time you understand what was going on. And yet, Messiah being presented to Israel is what that was all about. The fulfillment of prof the prophetic word going all the way back to Daniel uh, with an exact date being mentioned and being completely fulfilled to the letter. And, and, and Jesus weeps over the city at that point and he, he says, you've missed it. You've missed the day of your visitation. And so as we survey through these chapters, we're going to take a look. We'll stop and take a look at a few things and then we'll wrap up uh, in John chapter 20 and finish the chapter there, uh, which is a soft close for the book. And, and I'll explain that when we get there. So in chapter 12, we, it starts out on Saturday. It says that Jesus and his men were in Bethany. Uh, and and I'm, you don't have to go through the biblical narrative because I'm summarizing here. Uh, but I, I encourage you, go back and read this. I like to read things like this in one setting. Because it establishes the context and the flow going through whatever the book is that you're looking at. It's especially important in the letters, because in the letters of the New Testament, the epistles, uh, because they were one literary unit that was written for a specific purpose to a specific people, whether it was to people in a particular community or in a region. Uh, so uh, it's just important as we go through, and the reason for this morning, again, looking at taking Palm Sunday through this day, the eighth day out, the following Sunday, all of the things that took place. Like I said, you have 11 chapters for three years, and then you have these chapters, these 10 chapters, uh, or nine chapters, these nine chapters that cover essentially a week, a week and a day. And so a lot of material there. Uh, in chapter 12, beginning on Saturday, that Jesus had his men, they'd gone up to Bethany, Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. They were part of his inner circle. They were very close friends. I uh, don't know if they were related or not. There's nothing in the Bible that says they were, but they were very close. And Jesus, remember, not long before this, had actually raised Lazarus from the dead. He had gone up 
Uh, remember, news came to him while he was up in Galilee in the northern part of the country. He'd gone up to Galilee, or gone up from Galilee up to Jerusalem to that area because Bethany is about two miles out from Jerusalem, from the city. And he had actually raised him from the dead. And it says in chapter 12 that as a result of that, that there were a great many Jews. A multitude, is that's the Bible for a lot of people, uh, of people were there. There was a crowd that had gathered in Bethany as a result, not of Jesus being there as much, as Lazarus being there, because he was a popular guy. He had been dead, and they had literally watched him walk out of that tomb when Jesus had said, Lazarus, come forth. And so we have a, a, a whole bunch of people up in Bethany, and then on Sunday, they, they have dinner, and, and they make dinner and all that, and there's some great stuff in the beginning of chapter 12. And then midway through chapter 12, it says the following day, Sunday, the first day of the week, that Jesus took the donkey, remember, he we, he had the guys go and get the, the donkey, the, the colt, of, the foal of a donkey, the, the young donkey, and he rode that into Jerusalem. When he came down over the brow of the hill, the other Gospels tell us that he wept over the city and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've, you've slain the prophets that I've sent to you, and, and you have missed this, your day, the day of your visitation, as I mentioned, going back to Daniel and, and all of that. And so he comes into the city now. In John chapter 12, it says that they were laying down palm fronds in the roadway and, and that the, the crowd was screaming, Hosanna. And it was from the Psalms, a, a prophetic fulfillment again. But they were saying Hosanna because it, that literally translates save now. And, and what they were not looking at was the fact that they needed salvation from themselves. They were looking at the fact that they wanted salvation from the Romans because they were an oppressed people. They were very poor people to begin with, and Rome had placed a heavier burden on them after that. And so there they are, the people coming out of the city. There were the people that were coming down the hill with Jesus, these two crowds, and they converge. Uh, powerful things going on there. Uh, Interesting, if you look at these crowds, I'm, I want to just break it down. into the, There are four crowds, really, in these two crowds, because it has to do with the motivation of people's hearts and the motivations of why they, call, call, they thought this day to be important. Uh, the first is the sensationally motivated people. Uh, these are the people that were ooh-ah over Lazarus's being raised from the dead. They were not as concerned about Jesus and the fact that he had the ability to forgive sin as they were looking for a miracle, looking at these signs, looking at these miraculous things that Jesus did. And so they were motivated because they wanted to see the show. They wanted the sensationalism. A lot of that out there these days, folks. Uh, I've mentioned many times, if you come for the show, you're in the wrong place. I mean, we love the Lord. We want to have a, a great experience when we're here. And yet, this is truly the place where we huddle so that after we huddle on Sunday, we can run the plays Monday through Saturday. I mean, it's that's why we're here. We gather because we love Him. We want to worship Him. And we want to worship Him in spirit and in truth, as is told here in the Gospel of John. And the reason why we come is not because we want to have our senses titillated, not because we're, we're sensationally driven, but because we want to have a, an attitude of sincerity as we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, what about me? What do you want to do in me? What is your will for my life? And that's a good way to come to him. These people were looking for the show. We see that all through the Gospel of John. They were, they were really enamored by the signs that he did as an end to themselves. And, and when he dismissed the 5,000 that he had fed, he said, you know, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you're filled. You have the wrong motivation. And so we see people here with this motivation, and it's not a motivation that rises to the level that Jesus wanted to see. The second thing we see, again, with the crowd coming out of the city, laying down these palm fronds and saying, save now, Hosanna, uh, and it, what they're doing is they're politically or culturally motivated people. And, and what happens in that is where I think that God ought to be a Republican or he should be a conservative or, you know, and I overlay my political aspirations and ideologies with my thoughts of God. And he is way beyond and outside of any of that. And yet 
they were short-sighted. It wasn't a good thing that they were laying the palm fronds down. Yes, they were honoring him, and it was a prophetic fulfillment. Yes, absolutely. And yet, what they were indicating was short-sighted because they wanted him to throw off Rome. They did not have a, a, a real grasp on the fact that they needed to be forgiven for sin. We see that all through this gospel. That's what happens. It's, 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 it's short-sighted. It, it doesn't achieve what Jesus came to achieve. And so we see the sensationally motivated people, we see the politically motivated people, and then we see the religiously motivated people. The guys that were there, the religious leaders of Jesus' days, the, the ones that would actually be the ones that put him on the cross. They're there in the crowd, they're saying, look, the whole world has gone after him. We have lost control, we have got to do something about this Jesus guy, we need to get him dead. And that's essentially what they wanted to do. They had already hatched the plan to have him arrested so that they could kill him. And these guys, they were so stuck in their religion. And I'm not talking about religion in a good light. I mean, there is a good light that religion can occur in. James talks about it, helping widows and orphans and being unstained by the world. He says that's true and undefiled religion. But these guys were the worst that you could look at because their religion was an end to itself. They had so gotten off that any challenge they had from Jesus, they were rejecting out of hand without even weighing it for truthfulness and without even weighing it for the fact that maybe, just maybe, the things that he's putting forth have great weight and power. And so we see them. And then we also see the, the true disciples as Jesus is coming down. There were people that were part of... Uh, they, they actually had come to believe in him. They came to understand. They didn't fully understand what was going on, but they were really the ones who had a sincere heart. And so we see these four people, these four classes of people coming down the mountain. And, and the reason why I'm avoiding saying there was a fifth crowd of people that were undecided, and there probably were. I mean, there are a lot of people out there that are undecided. It is because primarily what Jesus does is he forces us to take a position. Uh, if you have heard the gospel, I, and if I share the gospel with somebody, I can share only for so long before I say, look, I've shared as much as I am compelled to share. You need to make a decision because you're either for him or you're against him. That's not my opinion. It's what he says. Uh, and, and so, yeah, fifth crowd would be the, the ones who were kind of scratching their heads saying, what's this all about? And I think that's valid. Yet those are the ones who at some point would be forced to make a decision, who would be compelled to make a decision for or against Christ. Same thing today. All four of these classes of people exist today. And so uh, in chapter 13, we see, and this is interesting, chapter 13 begins with the upper room up on Mount Zion. Remember, we've talked about that. And, and, and the upper room discourse is chapters 13 through 17, even though he's only in the upper room through chapter 13 and 14. But prior to that, again, Jesus, these four days would have been an intense four days. John doesn't cover it in his gospel, but it was an intense four days of instruction, of confrontation, and of bringing real conviction to these people. And that was what Jesus was about. He was coming and forcing them to take a position, just like he does with us. Now, as I mentioned, the, the religious leaders didn't like it. And they were repulsed, and they just, they couldn't get their hands on him quickly enough. So, now we come to the upper room, and Jesus is really, he's ended his public ministry at this point. Through chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, he's done with his public ministry. And now, he's going to have these last few hours, this five chapters and five hours, uh, in, in that night, uh, with his men. And he's going to have very, very important things to say about the kingdom and about the king. And, and he's taken his men aside. They've, they've gotten together in the upper room. We call it the upper room. It was the upper room of a, a place up on Mount Zion. We showed you uh, images of where that's at currently and, and how it's been rebuilt in the Byzantine period. But, but it's the same location. And it's, it's pretty well thought that that's where it was. And so here Jesus gathers together privately with his men. And in chapter 13, the first thing he does is he gives instruction on what it's going to look, what their service to him would look like after the cross, after the resurrection. And that's when he wraps himself with a towel and he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. And he says, you know, a servant's not greater than his master. Neither are you greater than me. 
And this is how I want you to do it. I've set an example. I've given you an example so that when you go from here, this is going to be look totally opposite than the way of the world, which is top-down management. No, he says bottom up. If you want to be the greatest, you need to be the servant of all. You need to get up underneath people and, and, and come alongside in that way. And servanthood is really, it's, it's the juice that drives the kingdom. It is what we are about. Uh, it's about going low. It's not about establishing position or prominence or power or status. And so he, he, he models that to these guys. And if he's modeling it then, Picture that. I mean, he takes the towel that he's wrapped with and he wipes the dirt off of their feet. Talked about that then, how here's God in the flesh removing dirt and taking their dirt onto his own stuff, which is exactly what he's doing. It's a picture of the cross in that sense, because that's what he does ultimately by the next day. But here in chapter 13, he's demonstrating servanthood. From there we see that they start to have the dinner, the, the last supper that we look at, and he says, whoever dips his hand into the, the, the sop with me is the one who's going to betray me. And Judas, at that point, Satan enters his heart, and he is absolutely opposed to Jesus at this point. He's solidified in his stance to betray him, and it says that he goes out into the night. So, from there, now Jesus can focus on his true disciples because there was a traitor in their midst up until then, and he knew it. He knew who he was. He wasn't surprised by this. He knew that Judas's heart was not with him. And, and I've commented before, how could Judas walk with him for three years to be in the presence of Jesus the Messiah, to see all of the things that he saw, to hear all of the teachings that he gave? and yet have a heart that is cold towards him. Um, and, and again, folks, I, I think about the scripture. It says, in the last days, the love of many will wax cold, will grow cold. Why? Unbelief. That's what John's gospel is about, that you may believe. That's the whole purpose he wrote it. And so uh, Jesus gives them this new commandment at this point. He says, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. And he goes and, and for the balance of his time in the upper room, several times he circles back to this foundational truth and reality that he wants to see in his people. Does that apply to us now? Absolutely. How many times do you hear about churches that just squabble and gripe and carry on and, and they get into this whole divisive attitude? It's because they're not walking in the great commandment. A great, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is the great commandment. And folks, I'll tell you what, there is absolutely no way that you can carry out the great commission unless you're walking in the great commandment. And it's linked to his love. The love he has for us. It's not just something we manufacture. It's allowing his Holy Spirit to direct the course of our lives and for the fruit of his spirit, love to manifest. Part of the work of the cross. Part of the power that comes from the resurrection. I'm going to have to step on it if I have any hope to get through this. <clears throat> what he does there in chapter 13 at that point is he says, look, I'm leaving. And I, I can just imagine this room full of guys, these 11 guys, that their jaws dropped. What do you mean you're leaving? I thought you were coming in to set up your kingdom. They had been arguing right up until the Last Supper. These guys, they were really good at doing what we do. They, they like to argue between themselves about theologically important things, like who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, John and James' mom comes and asks Jesus, hey, can they have, you know, like an office next to yours and all of that? Um and, and, and he says, are you able to, he tells the guys, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And, and in their ignorance, they go, yeah, we are. And, and not knowing that the cross is tomorrow. The night before he goes to the cross, they're having all these different conversations. And so uh, he tells them he's leaving. Peter is stunned. Peter doesn't hear the rest of what he has to say, I think, at that point, because it comes back around at the end of the chapter where Peter says, wait, 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 where are you going? And then into chapter 14, there's no chapter break in the original, and, and they had to put a break in somewhere, but this narrative continues into chapter 14, and Jesus says, look, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. I'm going, I am leaving, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
But that's not the end of the story. I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you unto myself. And that's a direct response to Peter and the other guys. I'm sure they were all paying attention at this point. Uh, a direct response to them. And they're wondering, what on earth are you talking about? You're going away. Uh, he just dropped the bomb because this is totally different than the way that they thought things were going to go when they showed up at the upper room to have the Passover with Jesus. Uh, remember, these guys are living it out. They don't see the end from the beginning. They're living it out, and they're stunned. Uh, Jesus makes a remarkable statement in chapter 14. <clears throat> and he, he lets the guys know, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way to God. I'm the truth about God. And I am the life of God. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. They had no idea that the way to God would be through Golgotha, through the cross. They had no idea to know that the life or the truth about God would be nailed to a cross tomorrow. They had no idea that the life of God would be extinguished, but only for a while. We'll look at that next week. Uh, but he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And then he begins to, to bring this beautiful exposition. He weaves it in through the rest of their time in the upper room about the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to send you another helper. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Look, this is not the end of the story. And, and he knows that they're troubled. And so he says, he adds, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. This isn't a temporary peace. This is a, an eternal. This is a, a, a supernatural peace that I'm going to give you. Uh, and I'm going to leave my peace with you. He, he ends chapter 14 saying, arise and let us go from here. And he goes out with his guys. Uh, I've mentioned before, I think he went up on the roof because he talks about vines and clippings and all. And, and, I, and they would have had those with the uh, the way that the roofs were set up to have Grape arbors for shade. Uh, anyway, he, he goes into this whole deal now as they walk out of the upper room. They're either up on the roof or they're walking through the city. And he says, look, I'm the vine and you're the branches. My father is the vine dresser. And he establishes the order that we operate within in the body of Christ. I am not the vine. He's the vine. I am not the final. I'm not the, the, the one who nourishes. Yeah, I love telling people, look, I'm a paper boy as a pastor, as a teacher. You know, I don't write the paper, but God's called me to be the one that throws it onto your porch. What you do with it is really between you and God. And and it's very freeing for me because I simply want to be faithful and deliver the word that God is directing me through his Holy Spirit. Because he's the vine. He's the one through which the nourishment comes see. And I love that he establishes this order because it doesn't go backwards. If you see that going backwards where somebody is establishing some weird authority, and yeah, he gives positional authority, that's fine, but that's a wild, that's a wild plant. That's not connected to the vine. That's something that's going off on its own. So he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. The nourishment will flow from me to you. And my father is the one who will do the clipping. Uh, I remember in my Bible college Bible uh, I, that I still have, uh, it, it still says boldly in the margin of John 15, clip, 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 because he does do pruning. He does prune us. So as we look at that, he, he goes on and he says, look, I want you to obey my commandments. But he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And and we looked at that at that time. It's a circular thing because because he loves me, because I have been immersed in his grace, because my life has been dipped in his righteousness, because I have not just been declared sinless, I've been declared holy through simple faith in him. The response of my life is I want to live a life that's in obedience to him. I want to live a life that counts for something. I don't want to go out there binging along on my own and not glorify him because I am a branch. And see, he ties this thing with the vine and the branches to our obedience, which is 
It's an obedience that's born of love. It's not born of some mandate that he says, look, if you get out of line, I'm going to whap you right into line. And sometimes he chastises us. That's absolutely true. But that's not what he was getting at here with these guys. He's saying, look, I am the giver of life. I'm the source of your life in me. My father's a vine dresser. You're the branch. Now do what branches do and grow fruit. And he goes on into that and he talks about bearing fruit. What does fruit look like? Loving him, loving one another. That's the fruit that he wants to produce. It ties back to what he's telling these guys, the great commandment. And then he goes on into it and he's talking about it here in another way. He takes another track and brings out, I want you guys to produce fruit. Love one another. Love God. On that hang the law and the prophets. That's, that's the end of our obedience. Because if everything I do, everything I'm about is about loving him and loving others, Guess what? I'm fulfilling all that he has. And it's a response. Again, it's a response to his grace. It's a response to his love. It's not something that I have to go out and, oh, man, I better just go do this. And sometimes it's hard, isn't it? The Bible says it's easy to love those that are lovable. Not so much with those that kind of grate on you. That you just as soon not be in the same room with. Come on. Don't give me Sunday faces. I know you think that too sometimes. But you know what? That's where the the rubber meets the road, folks. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And it's circular because because I love him, I want to keep his commandments. And so therefore, I'm doing it without him even telling me that that's a mandate because it's a response. So both are in effect in our lives. He finishes chapter 15 by saying, you're going to be persecuted. And it goes into chapter 16. He continues into chapter 16 with the same subject as the end of chapter 15 again. No chapter break there. And he's saying, look, I have been taking heat. And, and, and I'm paraphrasing here. Understand, he didn't say, hey, guys, I'm taking heat. But but he's essentially saying, look, I've been taking heat for the truth that I not just speak, but that I represent. Now, I'm going away. I've already told you that. And he says, look, since I'm going away, guess where the heat's going to go? It's going to go on to you. Because the world hates me, it's going to hate you. And he's very blunt about it in chapter um, 16. He says, that's how it's going to go. That's just the way it flows. And I want you guys to be prepared for it so that your faith doesn't fail. Because the world is, they're not going to be kind to you all the time. Yes, it's wonderful to see people step from darkness to light and from death to life and from the world into the kingdom. And I love it when people are not taking that aggressive stance against. But the gospel is offensive. It's still offensive. If you're presenting the gospel, it's offensive to people. And in that offense, people are challenged. Again, it's about making a choice. You're either with me or you are against me. And and people don't like to be, well, I would just kind of like to think, well, you know, my religion's kind of private and, you know, my God would never send people to hell. And, you know, and you get all of this stuff. And he says, no, it's based on who I am as I've been presented through my word. And by the power of my Holy Spirit, you will experience conviction over sin. That's part of the width with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that. I'm not going to go back into it. But truly, he forces people to make a choice. You can't stay neutral. And when people reject him and, and when they, they're essentially saying, I am choosing not to believe. I don't want anything to do with this. Guess what's going to happen to you? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, assassinate the messenger time. And he's letting these guys know they're going to kill you. They're going to, they're going to put you out of the synagogues, which means you're going to lose not just the ability to go to church. No, when you were put out of the synagogue, that meant you lost everything. You lost your family ties. You lost your community. You lost your livelihood very often. I mean, you were excommunicated. That's what he's talking about. Not just you can't go to synagogue. You'll be excommunicated for this, for me. And he says they're going to do that. They're going to kill you. It'll all be on account of me. And so understand, guys, that the heat is not going to get turned down when I'm gone. It's going to shift from me to you. And and he's... Again, direct with that. 
And he tells them, look, I'm telling you in advance so that you understand it when it happens. Uh, then in chapter 16, he also goes into the probably the most beautiful exposition on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And, and he, he gives the threefold work of the ministry of the Spirit. He'll, con- he'll come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. First thing. And then he says, oh, and he will guide you into all truth. If you understand what's being said this morning, it's because of the Holy Spirit's work. The Bible says that the things of God to the natural man are foolishness. Absolute foolishness, like blah, 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 blah. But no, it's the Holy Spirit's work to guide us into truth, to give us that, yes, this is true, this is right, this is good. Wow, that's, you know, there's power in that message, or whatever it is. That's the Holy Spirit bearing witness. And we either receive that or we don't. One or the other. He says he'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll guide you into all truth, and he will also bear witness of me. And that's a biggie. That's a hot button for me, guys. There is so much that's being represented out there that does not look like Jesus. There is so much false doctrine. There is so much hype. There is so much shallowness of people that are begging for, you know, it's just craziness out there. And, and, and it doesn't look like, he's giving us a litmus test. You know what a litmus test is? It's like you figure out, okay, this is the standard. Now, how does this compare? And what he's saying is the Holy Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's ministry will look like me. Loving, compassionate, merciful, gracious, patient, I mean, look at the fruit of the Spirit. It will look like that. He will look like that. Not like this hype that's out there. Not like this stuff that's designed to rip you off. Sounds good on the front end. Uh, watching a video recently, and it was like one of the things that was pointed out was whenever the gospel is presented in such a way that it's about you, it's not the gospel. It's about him. And it's for his glory, not yours. And, and so he, he brings these things out as he goes along and, and he, he's, he finishes chapter 16 by saying this, yeah, it's not going to end well tonight because he knew that his arrest was just hours away and then his six mock trials and crucifixion and all. He knew that. He knew that he was about to take the cup. And yet he said, this is not going to look like it's going to end well, but it will end well. He says, your sorrow will be turned to joy. By this time, these guys, I mean, they showed up with one whole mindset in mind and one whole train of thought in mind. And by this point in the evening, at the end of chapter 16, I would imagine that they were really struggling. They were just trying to wrap their arms around these profound things that Jesus is doing. And he's essentially saying, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Yes, he would overcome the world in the hours to come. But this is the last things that he's going to say to them before he goes to the cross. Because in John chapter 17, going moving forward in John 17, we look at the great high priestly prayer of Jesus and what he did in that prayer. What he established in that prayer was the divine order for the king and the kingdom. And what he establishes in that prayer, he, he, he's there. In the first section in John 17 is he prays for himself and the cup that he's about to take and the role that he plays, the, the supreme role that he plays in divine redemption for humanity. The second thing that he does is he prays for his men and he prays even that they would be able to bear up under the pressures that would come. The third thing he does is he prays for you and I. Uh, he prays for unity. He says, you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, and that they also may be one in us. He looks down through the ages, and he tells these guys while he's there, when, where he prays, he says, to the, as he's praying to the Father in, in this beautiful prayer, the Lord's, for the true Lord's Prayer, the other one's a model, uh, but as, what he's saying to these guys is, look, uh, 
your testimony being taken forward is going to be what establishes people as to coming to faith or not. And he says, Lord, protect them. Give them the ability. Give them the insight. I don't want to read too much into it. I'd love to go back into John 17 because there is so much there. But again, he prays for himself. He prays for his men. And he looks down through the ages and prays for you and I. That we being the ones who would come to believe long after he had passed off the scene. We'll talk about that a little more as we go on. Chapter 18, the scene shifts. They've walked through the city. They've gone down across the Kidron Ravine. And now they've come into this garden right near the base of the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. And remember, Gethsemane, what it means, it, it means olive press. And it was a place of crushing. How appropriate. How appropriate that the first Adam, as we looked at last week, was in a garden. And here we see the second Adam, the one who comes to write everything that had been wrong, is in a garden. And he's there and he's praying with his men and he's trying to get them to stay awake at night. And, and he goes to them three separate times and they're snoozing. And, and so we go through this whole thing. And then Judas shows up and to betray him. And he's, he's, he's not alone. He comes with the temple guard and a Roman cohort. We looked at it at that time. A Roman cohort is upwards of 600 men. We don't know if he had the whole contingent, but he came with a huge group. And it says that they had torches and lanterns and weapons. Totally misunderstanding. If one person had shown up to arrest Jesus, he would have gone. He was never out of control. I've talked about that many times. He was never out of control of the things that were coming his way. They said, whom do you seek? He said, whom do you seek? And, and, and they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And we looked at in the narrative that he said, I am, using the covenant name of God from Exodus 3, and knocked them all over. The whole bunch, were they landed on their rear ends because he, with a word, was demonstrating the power that he had in that moment. You're not arresting me. I'm volunteering to go. Yeah, they arrested him. It says they arrested him and they bound him. They tied him up to take to to cart him off. But he knew what was before him and he knew that that was what was going to have to take place. He was following the divine plan in taking the cup. So we look here and, and, and we see Peter's denials as he gets arrested and taken off to Annas' house. His three denials and, and Peter being broken. Uh, and he's taken before Pilate. Uh, Pilate says, well, they wake him up. He's at the Praetorium. They get him out of bed. It's early in the morning. And, and I would imagine he was kind of cranky when he walked out. He was kind of cranky anyway. If you look at Pilate's life and the things that are said about him. And, and, and he comes out and he says, what do you want? And they said, you know, we brought this Jesus guy here for you to, to try. And he said, well, what's he done? And, and their response was, well, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Well, that's a good excuse. Anyway, they take him before Pilate. Pilate says, do you want me or do you want Jesus or, or Barabbas to the crowd? Remember, he said it's customary for me to release one guy uh, during the feast. And, and we have this political insurrectionist and then there's Barabbas. And so that's how chapter 19 or chapter 18 ends. Chapter 19 uh, goes into Pilate's decision. And ultimately ordering his crucifixion. Now, Jesus has gone through, as I mentioned, six trials at this point. And they could not bring a charge against him. And yet Pilate said, I've washed my hands of this man's blood. He was afraid of the Jews at this point. And it's the only reason he ordered his execution. He said, there's nothing wrong with this. He didn't do anything. And yet, go ahead and have your way, because the, the Jews had incited the crowd to just a frenzy. And at that point, he orders him to be crucified. He's flogged. He's crucified. Uh, from the cross, Jesus, one of the most significant things he says is, he says, woman, behold your son, speaking of John. And, and he says to John, behold your mother. Taking care of his mother, taking care of his family, even in that dark hour of his life, still being others-centered, still being the servant. And at that point, as the crucifixion was coming about, we looked at this, and I'm going to speed this up because we looked at these things more recently. We started this whole section back last July. Um, I mean, we've been 19 months in the Gospel of John, and last July we started in verse 12. I, I looked on my computer last night. Uh, and, and so summarizing here to bring it up, um, 
that he says, I thirst, because it says in Psalm 22 that his, his tongue would be stuck in his mouth. It literally says that. And, and when they give him something to drink, then he is able to clearly enunciate, it is finished. And when he does that, he essentially gives up his life. He gives up the ghost. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come in at this point. Joseph goes to Pilate, says, can I have the body? And Pilate grants him permission. They take Jesus' body off of the cross. Joseph has a brand new tomb, and they take Jesus to the tomb. Nicodemus comes with 100 pounds of spices, and um, they partially embalm him for burial. They run out of time because it's Passover, and at sunset they have to stop. At that point, I remember we were looking at all of the prophetic fulfillments that came about with the crucifixion. I mean, there's a load of them. I don't even want to take time to go into them. But what I want to do now before we get into actually the text this morning is I want to look at, remember we talked about the four crowds that when he came down from uh, Bethany and he came into the city, there were the uh, sensationally motivated people and there were the politically motivated and culturally motivated people, and then there were the religiously motivated people, and then there were true disciples. Fast forwarding to the other side of the crucifixion, during the crucifixion in the Gospel of Matthew, we see the sensationally motivated people here, but they're not all excited about him anymore. In Matthew 27, verses 39 and 40, says those who passed by while he's on the cross blasphemed him wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross. They're walking by, wagging their heads and and, and, and blaspheming him and, and saying, yeah, well, you know, come on, show us a sign. Come on, get with the program. Let's see the show. They didn't care about Jesus at that point. He says they're committing blasphemy. These are not people that are for him. They were probably very much the same crowd that was out there laying down the palm fronds only Sunday before. This is Friday. It's only been a few days. But they had become so... They didn't see Jesus perform their idea of what Messiah ought to do during this time. And so now they've completely turned. We see the politically motivated man here in Matthew 27 as well. It says, the governor answered, said to them, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? And they said to him, they all said to him, a big crowd, let him be crucified. He didn't fit their pictures of a political Jesus. And when they had, when they chose Barabbas, what was Barabbas's crime? He was a political insurrectionist. They said, give us the political guy and crucify this Jesus character. He's not doing anything for us. He's not, he's not representing us to Rome in any way, shape, or form. The religiously motivated ones, there in Matthew 27, there at the crucifixion. This is likewise the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders, that's all of them, said he saved others and he can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and then we'll believe him, mocking him. They could care less about him. The true disciples, the Bible tells us in Matthew 27 that the Roman soldiers that were there that crucified him, that the lead soldier in their group said, this truly was the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And then also it tells us that the women looking on from a distance, the ones that, that loved him, watched the whole thing and drew near and then followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb. Chapter 20, Sunday in the morning. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Mary Magdalene comes uh, she has this encounter with Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. She looks in the tomb. She sees the two angels and all that. And, and, and when she recognizes him, she just latches hold of him. Um, she goes back, tells the guys they come. And, and we've looked at that again recently, so I'm not going to go into that. But then we go to the evening now on Sunday. 
I'm going to pick it up in verse 24 from last week uh, and just tag a couple of things there as we move forward and we wrap up this morning. It says in verse 24 of chapter 20, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So Thomas wasn't there. I talked about that last week. Nobody knows where he was and when he came back, but he wasn't there when Jesus originally showed up. Why was he gone? You know, uh, I don't know again, but, you know, you can extrapolate some things here. And I want to put one scenario forward. I'm deep into interpretation here. I want you to know that this is not, you know, this is just what I'm looking at because I've really wondered about this. Um, One view is that it wasn't cowardice which kept him away. I think it was anguish. We looked last week at, at how... He had been the one to said, let's go down in, in, in John 10 with Lazarus being sick. Well, let's go to Jerusalem. We'll just die with him. He was devoted to Jesus. He was the one that said, well, you know, Jesus, give us some more information there in the upper room when nobody else was speaking up. And I believe that his character is impugned here because his being doubting Thomas when he says uh, in verse 25, he says, it says, the other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the prints of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I refuse to believe. Think about it. Thomas had fled with all the other guys. And even when he had been the first to to volunteer to die with Jesus, in his own mind, I believe that Thomas believed that he had failed. Because it says that the disciples scattered when they arrested him and, and they tried him and executed him. Is it possible that Thomas was so shocked at the crucifixion they wouldn't dare to believe in a different outcome? And he was so shocked when he saw Jesus executed. And he was like, no, 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 uh, no. You, you're going to have to prove that one to me. Remember, they saw him dead. I just, I will not believe. I, I refuse to believe what you're telling me unless I see for myself. And he's doing the same thing that the other disciples had done. Remember, it says in Luke that they didn't believe him either. And he showed them the the nail prints in his side. And, and so what we're looking at here is Thomas is essentially no different than the others. I, I just think it's a cheap shot to call him doubting Thomas. He wasn't doubting Thomas. He was refusing Thomas. There's a difference between refusing to believe and having doubt. And he said, no. And he loved Jesus. He had a deep love for Jesus. He was committed to him. And yet he said, I refuse to believe unless I see that for myself. So now coming up to this week, what we're looking at here, eight days later. Now that finishes this eight days that we're looking at from Sunday to Sunday. We call it Passion Week. And that's what we're looking at this time of year. What we look at when we consider it starts with Palm Sunday. We go through the week and there are different things that uh, we can look at through the week. And then it culminates with Good Friday, which is where we remember and we look at the crucifixion. And, and then the ultimate culmination is the resurrection, without which our faith would be useless. That Sunday. And that's the, the day that we're just finishing in John. Now, the third section in John chapter 20 is eight days later. Now, there's nothing written. Uh, uh, about what happened during that eight days. And there's only one purpose that we see in this eighth day visit by Jesus. And I believe he's coming specifically for Thomas at this point. He would have lots to do, lots of interaction with his men, but that's what he focuses on on this eighth day. It says in verse 26, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in their midst. And he said, peace to you. I love that because that was what he had guaranteed them. That's what he had assured them of in the upper room. Remember, this is just a short time after the crucifixion. It's it's only been a week since he rose from the dead. And he doesn't bother to use the door. He just shows up and he says, peace to you. Probably as the guys, have you ever had somebody show up and you didn't know they were there? I mean, I haven't had anybody walk through a wall. But I mean, do you know how startling, my Uncle Ray, my, he used to come and visit my dad's restaurants and bakeries when I was a kid. And he was the, 
the most skittery guy that I've ever known. And as little kids, we loved to torment Uncle Ray. He always walked around with a coffee cup. He was an old Texan. He came from Texas, and he had that long Texas drawl. And, and he was a, an old guy at that time. And, and we loved to get up behind him and say, hey, and, and, and watch him jump. And he chewed tobacco, and that was what was in the cup. And my dad was always on him. Don't walk around this place with that. You don't want our customers to get driven and get all that. But he would jump, and, that, and the, the stuff would fly. And, and we were just, we had way too much fun with Uncle Ray. Well, so it's kind of like that when Jesus shows up in this room. These guys, they're just going along. Maybe they're having a conversation or they're eating or whatever it is. It doesn't tell us what they're doing. But they're there and they're together. And now Thomas is there too. And Jesus just shows up and says, peace be to you. And after these guys are all finished getting back into their skin, I mean, that wouldn't be something that I would just go, oh, hi, you know, how are you, Jesus? All of that. So he shows up, and, and there's more than the ten of them there. I mean, the Bible tells us in the other Gospels that there's more than, uh, I mean, the eleven of them there, that there's more than that there. There are other people in the upper room with them. And in, in verse 27, he says to Thomas, reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas it doesn't tell us that Thomas did it. And, and I looked in different scholars are kind of divided on whether he actually did it or he just looked. But Thomas responds to Jesus. And he answered and he said to him, my Lord and my God. And you got to believe that when Thomas is doing this, he's looking right into the eyes of Jesus. Jesus, with that knowing look, that loving, knowing look, Thomas Check it out. And Thomas responds, Kurios and Theos, Lord and God, ascribing deity in both of those terms, that he is the Lord and he is God. Um, I don't believe that Thomas says this because he's surprised. I think that Thomas is saying this because he's drawn a conclusion. And and. and he first proclaims Jesus' identity, and then he gives the greatest confession that anyone could ever make about Jesus when he recognizes him as God. Verse 29, And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Interesting. He starts his, he, he tells Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Um, this is known as the last beatitude in Jesus's in Jesus's dialogue with people. Remember, he starts in, in Matthew chapter five. He talks. He does the beatitudes there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when men revile. You know, all of those. All of the be attitudes. They're not do attitudes. I always love to say that they're be attitudes. They're attitudes of the heart. And what he's saying here, and he does it also with, with Peter in Matthew 16 when he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And so here, the last beatitude that Jesus gives on this side of the grave, he said, blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Question. Who are those who have not seen and yet have believed? I see hands being raised. That's good. You get to stay for lunch. Okay. Here's what Morgan had to say about that. I love this. He says, The eyes of the risen Christ were turned from Thomas and the group and looking down the running ages, he saw the great hosts who should believe on him, never having seen him. And his last beatitude came down the ages for all the sacramental hosts that would make up the church of God. When he says, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe, he's talking about us. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We haven't seen these things. And yet, if you identify 
as a Christian, if you identify as a child of God, you have chosen to believe. Act of your will. Remember, we've been talking about these choices of the choice, and he forces that choice. You're either on one side of the issue or you're on the other. There's no middle ground. He's saying, blessed are those who have chosen to believe, and they haven't seen. It's to these that Jesus pronounces this blessing. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 1, we have a definition of faith. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. In other words, this is not a subjective faith. It's a satisfied faith. It's settled with me. I pray it's settled with you. I believe because the evidence is so strong. It is way harder to have faith that Jesus didn't exist. It is way harder to believe in evolution than it is creation. It's way harder to believe that that this there's no meaning to life. Blessed are those who believe having not seen. And first Peter, Peter talks about this too. Real interesting. In chapter one of first Peter, in verse six, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Isn't that good? I mean, Peter is literally, he heard Jesus say this. And I can't conclude anything else other than as the the Spirit is guiding Peter, as he's writing this letter, that he's going back in his mind to Jesus, hearing him interacting with Thomas and the rest of the group. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet choose to believe. And Peter's saying, that's it. That's what faith is about. That's what this whole thing is. That's how you become a child of God. Now, verses 30 and 31, as we wrap up this morning, well, I'm going to actually be on time for a change. Verses 30 and 31 are what I call the soft close to the Gospel of John. It's very interesting. Uh, as we go here through here, I think you'll understand. It says in verse 30, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, John tells us he has presented an incomplete, however sufficient, collection. Remember, we've talked many times about why is John so different than the synoptic of the other three Gospels. Why it's so different? Because John is very poignant and very clear in what he wants to accomplish. It's that you may believe. This is an evangelical statement that he's writing in this entire gospel. He leaves out a lot of the things, not because they're unimportant, but because they're not consistent with what he believes goes to the point that he may bring people to faith. He may bring people to believe, and through that, they exercise faith in the finished work of Christ, in the person and the work. When he says, in this book, I believe that that's the intended conclusion, as John is reflecting back. See, we've talked about, and the reason why I called this, the title of this message, Reflections, this is not just us reflecting on chapters 12 through 20. But as John wrote this, as he wraps this book up, you have to believe that he's reflecting back on his time with Jesus, the things that took place, the things that the Holy Spirit is coming upon him to write. And he's very, very clear that he wrote these things. In verse 31, they're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing you may have life in his name. The point that he's making here is that this whole writing, this whole thing, and we're going to begin now to wrap up the Gospel of John. And so be praying for me for what's next. I haven't totally made up my mind, and I'm not going to tell you what I'm thinking. But but I, I'm really, we're going to go into the epistles, I believe, and I'm not sure where to go. 
But the point is, is that John, I call this a soft close. He finishes the book. He closes the book at this point, but there's chapter 21. What is that about? Is it any, any less the Gospel of John than the rest? No, I don't believe so. But it is very evidently an appendix to the Gospel of John. It's something that John probably wrote later, and it's appended onto the end of this Gospel, because he does do a close here. I mean, it's very clear at the end of chapter 20. And so chapter 21 he wants to bring us further. We're going to go out a period of time when we look at the guys up in Galilee at the sea and all of that. And then, you know, part of this, I, I draw some comfort from this because you guys know how often I do a soft close? A lot. I mean, most preachers will say, okay, well, with this, we're going to close. I think I said that a little while ago, didn't I? And we're still going. Well, that's essentially what John's doing here. Uh, he's giving a soft close. He's saying, you know, that wraps it up. Uh, and then as he went forward, the spirit must have been moving on his heart. You know, you need to relate the events that happened with Peter and with the guys up there in the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, when they said we're going fishing, which wasn't recreation, that was a career choice. And he kind of gently says, no, 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 you're done with the gnats. And we'll get into all of that when we pick it back up in two weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we could take some time.